welcome once again to A Novel Evening. I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram as at A Novel Evening Podcast and the same over on TikTok. Um, and I am very excited to welcome on James McManus, who's going to talk to me all about his latest novel, Love in a Lost Land. Um, James is a former Guardian Africa correspondent. This is a book inspired by the last colonial war in Africa. It's a beautiful story. It's a it's a very difficult read at times, but it's handled so incredibly. Um, the setting is so vivid and so real. Um, James really brings this world to life. Um, and I've got so many questions for him. I cannot wait to talk to him all about his novel evening and about this book. So uh, check it out. So a huge hello to James. Hello. Hang on. I just got to get this out Hello. <laughs> Welcome. How are you on this? I, I don't know if it's sunny where you are or if it's a bit grey. No, it's, weird it's cloudy. I'm in London. It's sort of cloudy and warm and <gasps> English summer. Well, I don't even feel like we've had an English. I feel like we've had an English winter at this point. I don't know what's happening. What's going on? It's very depressing. <laughs> well, OK, fair enough. That's the English weather for you. It truly is. And obviously you're used to slightly warmer climes as well. I'm what? presuming in your in your previous roles that you've had as a correspondent for Africa, you're probably used to the warmer environments. And that was a long time ago. But yes, I was in Africa and the Middle East for 10 years. So, Wow, uh, that's an incredibly long, big chunk of your of your life spent out there. It is. Yeah. 74 to 85. Yeah. Wow. Do you ever miss it? Africa, no, because all the hopes one had uh, for the development of the continent and for the leadership have just turned to ashes in, in my hands. Yeah. And in particular, Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe, who I knew very well. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's, I mean, you must have met some incredibly intriguing people during your time as well. Difficult people as well, I'd imagine, to, to be able to communicate with and speak to. Was there anybody that you particularly enjoyed meeting or speaking with or anyone that you wish you had gotten to speak with? No, I mean, the answer is that journalists in Africa in the 70s uh, very rarely got to meet leaders. There were wars going on in Angola, Mozambique, uh, what is now Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia. Uh, and elsewhere, Tanzania and Uganda. So um, it was it just wasn't possible to go and have long interviews with leaders. I knew Mugabe well because I saw him the day he came out of prison, out of detention, I should say. And uh, very soon after he fled to Mozambique and I would see him regularly in exile in the next five or six years. Often there were OAU meetings, that's Organization of African Unity uh, in Europe. And that's where I would go and talk to him. And I got to know, him. I thought I got to know him very well. Oh, that's intriguing. And so you have written so many books. I believe this is, is your eighth novel that you've it, it is, written. It is, it is, it is, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So firstly, for people listening, tell us about Love in a Lost Land. Give me the, the brief on this on this tale. This is a very different book from my previous ones in that it's a first-person narrative. It is very much a novel, but it is clearly based, as it will be evident to readers, on my time in Africa as a Guardian correspondent. Uh, we don't name, I don't name the country concerned because I don't want the preconceptions that are attached to the name of Zimbabwe or Odisha to get in the way of the story. Above all else, this is not a political novel. It's a story of two people, uh, a township uh, teacher, an African woman, and a visiting American uh, magazine writer. Actually, he's English, but he works for American magazine. And their passionate love affair at a time when everything was crumbling around them. When the old regime was going, the new regime was coming in, the new nationalist regime, and 
uh, it's in that context that I tell a story. Now, anybody who reads this will see through what has already been described to me as incredibly realistic detail that the author must have been there, and he was. Yeah. And you've obviously said this is very different to your previous novels. What was it that inspired you to write this story and, and why now? I think if you stayed as I did in those in the 70s in, in what was then Rhodesia, it made such a huge impact on me and raised so many questions about my own ability to report that fairly and objectively, which was really difficult. Um, that, that it was traumatic in many ways. Uh, at the same time, it was wonderful because this is an amazingly beautiful country. The people I met there, black, white, brown, yellow, doesn't matter what, were really very, very impressive and, and very friendly and very nice. Nice, perhaps the wrong word. So that experience has been sort of stewing around inside me for all those years. And I just, it just began to come out. I think most writers would agree that you write, you're inspired to write something, uh, quite without knowing how it happens. I mean, you you know, it just sort of comes to you that you've got to sit down and write this particular story. And this is a story that I wanted to tell. Were there any parts of the writing for you that were quite difficult to write about or perhaps cathartic to write about? Was it an emotional process? It was quite emotional because you remember friends who uh, have since died or who died during the war. Uh, you remember um, relationships that you had uh that didn't work out or in some cases did so um all that is a sort of an emotional stew that bubbles around at the back of your mind and uh yeah it's on the whole quite pleasurable actually to remember those days they yeah. were fun. and what was your favorite part to write what did you most enjoy being able to kind of go back to or moments that you were able to draw upon well i don't think in the book i can say what the favorite bit was what interested me most, and I suppose gave me most pleasure, I've always believed if you create real realistic characters and and any decent writer, and I hope I am one, will spend an awful long time on getting character rights. Hmm. You find they begin to dictate the, the novel. They, they will take you in places that you had no idea you were going. And in particular, towards the ending, and every novelist, every writer agonizes over the ending. I mean, how do you end a, a novel? Do you end it on a high or a low? Do you end it without sort of, you know, like Casablanca, where Habibaga goes off in one direction and she goes off in the other. I mean, what do you do? And in my case, in this novel, I got huge, a huge kick out of the fact it was the characters who told me how to end it. And I they wanted, that. yeah, it's true. Yeah, I love, you're not the first, you know, author to come on here and say that, you know, the characters were talking to them because you they really are true people. Exactly. You get to know them so clearly. I mean, obviously, for you as well, I imagine you've drawn on real life people to some extent as yeah, well. Exactly. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Must be really, really intriguing. And I guess as well, when you were writing this, I don't know if you wrote this during the lockdown period or if you kind of, how long did it take you to write this novel? Well, not very long because um, when I say not very long, I'd say 18 months to get the first draft done. And then there's the editing process. And I have some yeah. very good and very critical friends who will tell me what they think, and they did. And that's when you you take on board what they say and you make changes, um, and it goes through that process. But yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into this theme particularly, but it was a difficult novel uh, uh, to, to, find a pub, to find a publisher for, because if you're writing about a black-white relationship in the current mm -hmm. zeitgeist, you face certain problems. Anyway, the book is now published, or will be very shortly. It is, and also I have my I have my copy here. Excellent. I have my my beautiful proof. 
And I, is this the finished cover? Obviously, listeners can't see it, but it has a gorgeous proof cover on it. Is that the final cover? That, that, is, we'll the, that, that is the final cover. And that is a fantastic, that's the best cover I've ever had in any of my books. Really? It's, it is yeah. gorgeous. It's so striking. And you know yeah. immediately what the story is going to be about just looking at exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So Thank you. And do you have a lot of kind of, did you have much of a hand in the cover? Was this something I know some authors do, some authors don't? No, I mean, you can put up ideas, but in fact, it was the um, in-house designer at White Fox Publications, uh, publishers, um, who did this. And they came up, they came to me with three uh, uh, sort of versions of the cover. And they said, we all have our choice, but we want to see what you say. <laughs> and I knew once you see that, it had to be, there was only one. You know, there was only one right up. answer here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 As I said, you know, this is your eighth novel and it's due out in September. Does it ever feel different? Is it ever, do you ever get bored of the feeling of a novel coming out? Is it always exciting every time? How does it feel with this one? It's, it's just as exciting as before. It is always exciting. This one excites me more than any of my previous novels because people I really trust and who, as I've said, I've been highly critical of some of my earlier work have told me this is the best thing I've done. And I believe them and I really think that's true. And because it's a first person narrative, um, told through well a lead character um it it it's different for me and it's something I feel quite proud of because I think it works so I think as well the thing is with the first person you you really have to embody that person you have to know their voice you have to know them inside out and you know from what I've read it's part of my yeah. current read at the moment I do think you if I read that and was told those characters were real I would absolutely believe that well, I'm delighted you're reading it because I think once you start the narrative, I always try and make my narrative flow strong because I think that's yeah. um, it's a traditional way of writing a novel, which I think to some extent has been forgotten these days because um, you read only a sort of first novels about, quote, relationships, which go off into long sort of tangents and forget that the reader does need a sort of spine to a book, a story that mm. moves. Um, so I'm very pleased you're reading it. I think you'll enjoy it. From what I've read so far, I very much am. And I have to say, this is a very different novel to what I would usually pick up. Um, as a general rule, you can see from my shelves, there is a lot of historical fiction, but also a, a lot of fantasy. That's um, right, I, yeah. don't, I tend to steer clear of, of realism, as it were, but it's such a beautiful story. And I am woefully ignorant. Um, I was born in the 90s, um, and I am woefully ignorant as to the political situation, probably then and now. And I do yeah. think it's something that more people need to be reading about and be aware of yeah. the history of. Yeah, well, that's thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful book. And, you know, this is obviously quite a deeply personal book. She said it's been very different for you to write. How do you then follow that up when you've written something like this? Where do you go next? Well, I always have these ideas bubbling away at the back of my mind, as I've said, and, and they've always led to a book. Uh, on one or two occasions, it's been an actual incident in my life which has led to a book. But... Um, I could tell you about, just in two sentences, about my next book. Shall I do that? Do it, like please it? do. I would. When um, Nelson sailed in 1805 in HMS Victory to take on the Spanish and French fleets, he had a crew of 822 uh, on, on board. The youngest was a boy called Thomas Twitchett, who was 12 or 13. Oh. But Thomas Twitchett wasn't a boy. She was a girl who'd smuggled herself on board to escape a life uh, of hell in a local orphanage. 
you've I've already sold <laughs> as soon as you tell me the twist I was absolutely starting is this this is based on a true story this happened no it's I, well the true story is obviously a victory of, of Nelson and Trafalgar yeah. but could a young girl of 14 15 uh pass off as a boy uh, uh, in the dark corridors and cabins of age yeah. of course she could I mean she's got cropped hair she's a slim figure it's fine yeah oh did. it's so intriguing I do love and and I think there's this idea especially of the time of women being in these situations they absolutely not not should not have been but in the eyes of those around them should not have been I think there's something very interesting about that um yeah. so yeah I, I really would like to know when this book's coming out I would like to read it <laughs> <laughs> no pressure if you could get that written all right I, I, I've got it pretty much written my wife is oh, laughing exactly. in the background because she's doing a yeah um, <laughs> well, I'm very excited for that. And now look, as I said, you're obviously someone who is well-traveled. You're someone who obviously has a keen sense of history as well, from what you've just told me. And from yep. looking at your previous novels, you have lots of different inspirations. So I feel like with your novel evening, we're going to get something pretty exciting. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see who's I mean, coming. You're, play you're playing it very cool, so I. but I have high hopes. I really do. Um, so I always start our novel evenings by having to ask where we're going to go, and I feel like you've got a lot to choose from here. Well, I have, but I, I've decided to go to the Algonquin Hotel in New York in Manhattan in 1924-25. Oh. Now, do you know about this? I know a lot about, I love the time period, like New yeah. York in the 20s. The name rings a bell. I am fairly rubbish with history. I I love history. Well, let me, let, let me. at the seen. Algonquin Hotel, there was a large round wooden table, huge, a dining room table. And every lunchtime, Monday to Friday, a group of writers, some actors, poets met to drink cocktails, which they did, and uh, to talk about the arts and about creativity and so on and so forth. And they included, um, who did they include? Uh, Dorothy Parker, absolutely famous wit, a woman who could um, uh, literally on the turn of, a, or at the drop of a cocktail, kind of come up with a very witty little couplet. I should give you one example. Uh, I really like martinis, <laughs> but two at the most. Three takes me under the table and four takes me under the host. Oh, <laughs> I actually can relate to that quite strongly. <laughs> I think um, she has anyway, that. So that's where I would position the uh, the dinner. Um, that, that hotel is still going in New York. It's just off Times Square. The round table is still there. Um, I mean, there were great people like Harold Ross, who are not well known now at all, of course, who played poker at the table, won so much money that he started a magazine called the New Yorker magazine, which is where it all started. So wow. um, in American literary circles, the Algonquin and the round table there has huge significance and it's well known here. So that's what I was, I'd have my dinner. Oh, and importantly, what would we be drinking? You know, you mentioned cocktails. Cocktails, cocktails, gin cocktails. Do you have a particular favorite? I, I don't drink cocktails, but Dorothy Parker would drink almost any cocktail. A lady after my own heart. <laughs> I'll take whatever's being served. That sounds wonderful. And I love, you know, if this if this table could tell stories, the things it's heard, and I love places like that. Yeah, I know. It's it would be 
Yeah, and the table's still there. That's the amazing thing. But nobody meets down here. It's just a tourist hotel. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, we're going right back then. We're going back to the 20s, which is the peak time to be going and, and meeting in this room. Okay. So who's the first guest you've invited? Well, I've invited someone from the 18th, from the 19th century, uh, a man called Charles Baudelaire, who was is the most famous of all French poets. And that's my view, but I think it's unchallenged pretty much across the literary scene. And Baudelaire was a phenomenon, not just because his poetry broke all the rules, and um, was very modernistic, and was the subject of the biggest pornography trial in American in, in French history, wow. because it was highly erotic, but also because Baudelaire had a huge influence on W.B. Yeats, on T.S. Eliot, on James Joyce, on all the writers who saw in him the first of the really modern men, somebody who could encapsulate the human condition, the misery. And Baudelaire, although he was born with wealth and born in high society, haunted the brothels of the bars of the left bank and prostitution and prostitutes come into his poetry a lot. I mean, you know, it's extraordinary. And so that's, I was certainly happy. He spoke very good English, by the way. Ah, that's going to be useful. It's going to be helpful, <laughs> yeah. My French is not great. <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, my French is very much Duolingo French that I can manage. So, okay. But I love, you know, you said he grew up in wealth, but I love that he was not afraid to be in the gutter and writing about those things. That's right. Yes, he did. Exactly. Which I think is incredible. And how do you think he would fare in New York in the 20s? I think he'd love it. Because New York in the 20s was a, a flapper time. There was prohibition, so there's all the excitement of getting a drink illicitly, and the shabins and the and the and the. It would have reminded him of Paris in many ways. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the uh, the prostitution scene in the brothels, but certainly he would have had a lot of fun then. Oh, it's intriguing. Okay, okay. Our first guest has arrived, and I already feel like there's going to be a night of conversation and maybe debate happening. Completely, completely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Who's the next person that you've invited? Um, well, I mentioned about W.B. Yeats. Oh, and, my favourite, my favourite. Well, he won't be your favourite when I've just told you what I'm about to tell you. Oh, no! The reason I want to have him there is not for his poetry, but I want to ask him how an intelligent, rational, emotionally kind of uh, almost sort of perfect man could possibly have supported the Nazis throughout the 1930s. And every time that Hitler produced a new law against the Jews, and God knows there were a lot of them, he publicly, Yeats publicly supported it, both writing in Irish papers and for, for, for the German press. And it's quite extraordinary to me that a man who could produce such emotional poetry, such poetry which was sort of connected to human suffering in many ways, yeah. could do this. He wasn't alone. T.S. Eliot was also um, both an anti-Semite and, and not as much as Yeats. Mm but approved the, the National Socialist Programme. Ezra Pound went more than, went further than any of them. I the was only so writer unaware of that, group, of that. Yeah, I know. The only writer who stayed completely out of that group was James Joyce, oh. who had nothing to do with the Nazis. I did not know that. And I'm at, I'm stunned now, because as you say, like his poetry is so conditioned when, to the human emotion. Exactly. When Hitler, uh, introduced the Nuremberg Laws of 1938, which deprived all Jews of all property in Germany. He, W.B. Yeats, came out and supported it, saying this was a necessary economic measure. It was unbelievable. 
Um, so I want to sit him down at that table and, and Baudelaire would have a go at him too and demand to know what earth he was thinking about. I was going to say, well, what would Baudelaire do in this situation as well? Well, he would drink a lot of wine and have a... He would be furious. He would be absolutely... Baudelaire was the most modern of modern men, as I said. I mean, he had not a trace of, of prejudice about people. Uh, as far as politics were concerned, he was for the people. Baudelaire got on the, bar the barricades of Paris in 1848 with a rifle. So he was a, wow. a good revolutionary in many ways. Goodness, yeah. And I can't... Trying to imagine what Yeats' response would be, because I don't even think there's a way you can... Well, Talk it's interesting that nobody really challenged him during his lifetime. He was so famous and so grand and the great man of, man of, of poetry and literature that he was never challenged. And I'm not at all sure that the recent big biographies of him really go into this and reveal it, but but I think they may have done. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I obviously learned about Yeats at school, and that's certainly not something that's covered when you're discussing him. No, you that wouldn't be covered, no, no, no. No, which I think, and you know, like you say with Yusuf Elliot and... Ezra Pound and you know you Ezra Pound I've obviously heard of because I think some of his yeah. is probably very much out there but I do feel that some of it is buried a little bit especially like you say when people are so famous their love yeah. their work is yeah. so beloved it almost just gets yeah. kind of buried and squashed and very anti-semitic too that's another thing that was common both to Yeats and to Ezra Pound and of course to T.S. Eliot it's in Eliot's poetry so um Elliot incidentally references Baudelaire in some of his major poems, um, as does Pound and indeed does James Joyce. Oh my goodness. Um, now then, for my next yeah, guest. Yeah, I'm intrigued now because we've set up quite a, you've got quite a powder keg going on here. <laughs> well, I've got to put in somebody who is witty and fun and can lift the conversation and take it away from uh, yep. sort of too much anger. And that has to be Dorothy Parker. She yes. is the wit. She is, and she wrote wonderful uh, uh, witty first. I'm going to give you one more small one. Yeah. When you swear you're his, sibering and shying, lady, remember this, one of you is lying. Ah, <laughs> I just, I love it. It's so simple, but it's so exactly. good. And That's I feel like when things get heavy at this table, Dorothy's going to, she'll just have something to say that will turn the mood. Yes. Now, Baudelaire at this stage would be drinking. I'm not at all sure he would mind quite what he, he, he loved his wine, actually. So we'll have to have some wine on the table. Yep. Uh, Yates liked a glass of wine, too. And I think Yates, under pressure, would certainly be drinking quite a lot because he would be ashamed. Yeah, certainly. Do you think he would stay? Uh, good question. Yates died in the winter of 1946, knowing mm. that the man he'd saw, the policies he'd supported, had led to mass murder, to genocide, to the obliteration of much of Europe. And how he took that to the grave, I don't know. He must have felt absolutely awful. My goodness. It'd be very intriguing. And how do you think Dorothy and Baudelaire would would get along? Dorothy would have a, would be merciless with, with the AIDS because she would see in him someone who was pompous, and she was, gifted, yep. of course, but pompous and rather grand and sort of the old sort of school grand gentleman type thing. And she would really mock him, but in a very kind of clever sort of, I don't think she would have a huge amount to, I mean, she would have a lot to say about his anti-Semitism, of course. Yeah. But if we're back in the, in the, in the 20s, that won't have really yeah. emerged. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay, do you have anybody else coming? Of course. Good Lord, oh, good. come on, I'll have one or two more. Um, you can have as many as you like. 
I want, I'm enjoying uh, the drama. <laughs> I want a fictional character to come, Philip Marlowe. Okay. Um, oh, tell me more. The the uh, great character in all Raymond Chandler's novels. Well, Philip Marlowe was that sort of detective and a CD kind of run down Los Angeles of the 30s and early 40s. And he saw the sort of the underbelly of America then. He understood how Hollywood worked particularly. Yeah. And Hollywood, for all the glamour, was a pretty grim place if you happen to be a struggling actress or indeed actor. Yeah, I love and, anything set in that time period around exactly. then. There's there's a game I love that's set then where you are a police officer in Hollywood with the kind of the young actresses and the casting couches and yeah. the yeah, it was not a nice time to be a young struggling actress or actor indeed. Exactly. But what I wanted Marlowe to do was to tell us uh, talk to us a bit about Chandler, see how he mm. thought Chandler had created him and whether he liked the embodiment of this sort of tough uh, cigarette Ooh. smoking Humphrey Bogart type figure, because that's what he became in people's minds, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. And yeah. I would certainly talk to him about that. Um, Chandler, funnily enough, for a man who did create such kind of whip-cracking dialogue um, and sort of splendid suspense and some violence, was quite a boring man than himself. And he <laughs> he 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 went to bed early with a cup of tea. You know, he wasn't at all the sort of the gallivanter. No, which is so interesting when you have a writer who you say, you know, writes about the seedy underbellies and these yeah, kind yeah. of gruff cigarette smoking. And then, yeah, like you say, is the kind of, I'm, it's nine o'clock, I'm going to bed. It's so interesting. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, I've got one more woman to join us. Oh, this wonderful. To, she's a French woman, um, 19th century French woman called Jeanne or Jeanne, Jeanne Duval, D-U-V-A-L. You would never have heard of her. She was a mixed race from the Caribbean. She arrived as an immigrant, an illegal immigrant in France in 1825 or six. And she was absolutely gorgeous. She had sort of an amazing figure. She had a sort of mix, she was mixed race. Her father had been a planter, mother a cook in the kitchen. Uh, she couldn't speak much French, but she didn't have to speak much French to get on the stage in Paris. People just looked at her and she had these most amazing eyes and long, long, long tresses of black hair. And that's where Charles Baudelaire saw her one evening. It was about 1840. And it was a little cabaret theatre at the end of what was to become the Champs-Élysées. The next morning, a, a carriage went round, the flowers arrived, she stepped into the carriage, and there they were together. That woman uh, was in his life for the next, well, for the rest of his life. She betrayed him in every way. She slept with all his friends, gave him syphilis, she turned him into a drug addict. She stole all his money. And yet at the end of his life, he said, I cannot, I have only got two responsibilities to my art, to my poetry and to my black Venus, as he called her. She inspired the greatest poetry in the French language, Jean Duval. Oh my goodness. And every and biographer of, of, of Baudelaire has damned her as a, a slut and a prostitute, which she which she was in, a, in, in, in essence, she slept with everybody, but Without her, we wouldn't have this amazing poetry, Le Fleur du Mal. Yeah. And do you want to get them back her... in a room together? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> no, he he looked after her. He loved her. He, he understood her. You know, he, he could see that. Um, so I want her to have a conversation with, with Dorothy Parker. <laughs> I, I think... do think, for the time as well, I do think, you know, when you have poets and artists... They were all so passionate and they were all having affairs with everybody and they were all hard drinking and hard smoking and they were all with one another. And I just think that was the way of it. You think that's changed? 
<laughs> I don't perhaps not as openly. Not perhaps. as openly. You're right. You're right. You're right. I think they lit I think they had it on their sleeve and they wore it fairly unashamedly back then. If you were a bit of a rogue in a cad, you wore it. Whereas I think That's now right. there's you know, there's PR isn't there and you've got people trying yeah. to spin things. But then you didn't spin it, they just did it. So that's pretty much my um, dinner party. There are a couple others I could invite, but I think that'll do because there'll be enough conversation, I think, around that. I I mean, I think it's it's very interesting. I think you've you've got, you know, cocktails flowing, wine for Baudelaire, you've got, you know, lovers, you've got, you know, that we're gonna interrogate Yates, we've got Dorothy Parker there, and Philip Marlowe, I feel, is gonna be sat there watching you okay. know belief is hat seeing what's happening perhaps occasionally coming out with something you've you've really set a bit of a powder keg going on here this could go any way it could go anywhere you're right i do love a bit of drama though <laughs> well i think that's there's plenty of drama in that though <laughs> there definitely is and look this is where i ask and i'm not sure how you're going to answer this but i usually ask if there's anyone who's not welcome yes absolutely far too many people in my life because if you get to my age you have inevitably found people who for some reason just, just dislike you. I don't know why, but they don't like you very much. So I don't want them to come. So first of all, Lawrence Durrell, who wrote the Alexandria Quartet and who was uh, famous as a writer up to 1960. The French adored him. He was the most pompous writer, the most boring writer, the man who probably stultified more readers than any other author in the history of literature. And yet was praised to the skies. And I just wanted him to know that I knew that his great masterpiece, as everybody says now, is unreadable. So that's why I wouldn't invite him, but I would tell him why I wouldn't invite him. Oh, oh, and like you'd make sure he knew why he couldn't come. Exactly, exactly. Now there's somebody else, hang on a second, who's the other person? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <coughs> um, I can't find the other person, he's around somewhere. Anyway, um, who is it? Because there was another writer who's wildly overpraised, who who uh, is now widely regarded as. Well. Anyway, let's let's leave that at that. Lawrence Darrell, I mean, because he was so so well known, so praised. And the thing about the literary world is the same as the political world or any other world. Once praise starts accumulating in a certain person, everyone else rushes in to think, "Oh well, I'll, yeah. you know." Is a sort of a me too aspect to it. It's human nature, I suppose. Yeah. Follow my leader. Well, not, not welcome. And also, I think if he was to show up, I don't think he, you know, he'd get pretty short thrift, I think. He he room. wouldn't, he was, he said he would get short shrift. Maybe Yates might have a, a time for him, but Yates is long dead before he even did anything. Yeah. Um, and also, Yates isn't really the most popular person at this table in this gathering. I think he's so probably not the say most unpopular. Unpopular, I think it would have to. Michael Jean it's Duval, not going to say a lot if he's welcoming Lawrence, is it? Exactly. Oh, my word. Well, look, I love a carefully thought out bit of drama as well. I think you've chosen your guests very well. And before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening, what's left of it, I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. I'll tell you exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm reading. I'm glad you asked that because it's a sort of a, a hint I like to pass on to other people. Um, I'm reading Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast, which is a series of little short stories and observations. It's it's not um, fiction, it's fact, about his time in Paris in the, in the 1920s. 
And it's absolutely wonderful. These little sketches of James Joyce and Scott Fitzgerald, the great Gatsby, and uh, Gertrude Stein and others. And it's full of the most remarkable little stories. I mean, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, they had lunch every day, a bit like the Algonquin table with those writers in New York, uh, some cafe in Paris. He didn't have much money. And one day Scott said to him, can you come and help me pick up a car from Lyon, drive it back to Paris? Zelda has left it there, Zelda Scott's wife. Sure, said Hemingway. They take the train down, Scott misses the train, of course, he's absolutely chaotic, but they get to Lyon and there's the car. It's a Renault, it's an old Renault, but the roof's been taken off. Zelda had the roof taken off for some reason that nobody, well, she wanted to have a sort of open top car. Yeah. And it was November and it was raining and they drove back to Paris in the rain, in this car. And every time it really rained, they jumped out and sheltered under a tree. And Hemingway writes this story. It's high comedy in, in, in A Movable yeah. Feast. It's absolutely wonderful. You know, I'm so guilty and I, I love Paris in that time. I think if I could go back in time anywhere, it would be there. And I'm so guilty of not reading more Hemingway. So I'm going to get that book immediately. I'm going to add that to my list. Thanks to you. A Movable Feast is very good because it's, it's an insight into the literary world at that time. Yeah. I'm actually not a great fan of Hemingway's. Um, I don't subscribe to the view that he's completely overpraised and over kind of, uh, no, I, I don't I don't think that's true. But I don't think he's quite the great uh, writer of the first half of the 20th century yeah. um, that people make him out to be. But I have one other author I want to bring to your attention if I Ooh, can. Do it. Because I'm rereading her and she is a woman called Joan Wyndham. And Joan Wyndham was 17 in 1939 when the war broke out. And she was living in Chelsea as a student. And um, in those days, you know, the bombers began to fall and so did morals. And she began to have a lot of affairs with it. She was in the artistic community right. uh, and drink a lot of sort of bathtub gin and try for months and months and months to lose her virginity. This is a part of the, and she wrote diaries. And those diaries were finally uncovered in 1985 and have been turned into two of the most marvelous books, which tell you what life was like for a young woman in London wow. under the book. And they're called Love Lessons and The Blue, what's the other one called? Uh, and Blue Love. And they are probably out of print now, but they were huge hits when they came out in the 90s and sold tons. She was still alive then, actually. Um, and if you reread them now, one, you get a sort of historical kind of look at what London was like then. And two, it's yeah. very well written. It's very amusing. And it tells you, you know, this is a young woman. You know, as, as London was leveled down, she was growing yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I've never heard of them. And I'm no. very I'm going to have to go on a hunt now. Okay. I will usually find them somehow, somewhere I'll find a copy, but I'm adding all of those to my list. But as you can see, my I don't have any room on my shelves, so I'm going to blame you <laughs> for me having to try and squeeze them somewhere. But look, this is honestly, James, this has been such a pleasure. It's been fascinating okay. to get to talk to you. And Love in a Lost Land is out in September. I wish you all the best with it. I'm loving it. I and do uh, hope you, you finish it because I think you'll like it. It is a... I absolutely story. shall. And I shall let you know exactly what I think as well. I will make sure that I pass that on. And thank and do, you again for joining me. Not at all. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.